0: Hello and welcome to the Mejlis podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Panier, host of the Medjly's and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus Newsletter. We've discussed gender and domestic violence in Central Asia several times on the Mejlis podcast. Governments in the region pledged to implement and enforce new laws that would better protect women and girls, and they have passed legislation aiming to do just that. Yet shocking stories continue to come out of Central Asia about gender and domestic violence. In Kyrgyzstan, in late September, a woman was brutally attacked and permanently disfigured by her ex-husband. The woman had complained to police several times about the abuse of her former spouse. Her horrific story is sadly only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to gender and domestic violence, and many other stories of official neglect and apathy toward the plight of women have emerged since the attack. Why is the law not working to help curb violence against women and girls? And I need to remind that we're talking about Kyrgyzstan. Media in that country is relatively freer than in other Central Asian countries. The problem of gender and domestic violence is just as bad in these neighboring countries. It just doesn't see, receive the same amount of coverage. So to discuss all this, I'm joined by Oksana ismail Bekova, a research fellow at the Leibniz Centrum Moderne Orient, her research work focuses on kinship, migration, ethnicity, patronage, conflict, and gender in Kyrgyzstan. Adina Masalbekova, a Bishkek-based independent researcher focusing on China's engagement with Central Asia. Adina has worked previously with the Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences, the Australian National University, Global Partners Governance, the Center for European Security Studies, and the OSC Academy. Lila saith a lawyer living in exile in Europe, Lila is the chairwoman of the NGO Freedom for Eurasia and a member of the working group for the global treaty to end all forms of violence against women and girls. Thank you all for being on the program today. And I want to start by kind of trying to set the table here a little bit, so we can we can understand, um, you know, this what the law is supposed to do for these people. Um, and actually, we can start with anybody here, but to to whom are. Should women appeal uh, when they're the victims of v- abuse or violence, and what are the authorities supposed to do to protect them?
1: I'll um, I'll take that. So um, it's it's it should actually be quite simple. The process has to be really simple. There has to be a very simple way for the woman to to go to the police, report report uh, her situation. Uh, submit a very simple complaint. and of course, there have to be officers trained in handling cases like that that would know how to approach the victim, how to speak with the victim, to understand how not to victimize and traumatize the victim further, not to shame and blame the victim, and um, collect you know all necessary material evidence, uh, you know, schedule uh, an expert sort of uh, checkup, a medical checkup. And then there there is also another, there is actually a whole circle of professionals that come in contact with a victim at that moment. That's also medical professionals. There has to be, of course, um, a possibility to provide psychological support um, there are very simple things also in the process that the government, the authorities can do that or they aren't that expensive, actually. Um, like, for example, you know, a simple, s- simple possibility for, for the woman to, to be able to leave the child somewhere, um, for the time when she files a complaint or goes to the court if, you know, if her case reaches the court, actually. And this is exactly something that is actually not not working in Kyrgyzstan. And um, I understand that Kyrgyzstan is not the only country that where that doesn't really work. There are many places where things like that don't exist. Um, But these are like the golden standards that should be in place for the woman to be able to use. And unfortunately, we're not seeing that in Kyrgyzstan.
0: Thank you. Anyone want to add to that?
2: Yes, I would like to jump in uh, to Leila's uh, point. And for this, why the, this law designed to protect women faces various complex challenges that make it quite ineffective. And uh, in my view, it's corruption is the main problem because most of the time, husbands intimidate their wives, claiming that they can bribe the, easily, bribe the police, lawyers, court, or they usually threaten to take away children and property and as we know, in most of the case in Kyrgyzstan, property is usually any kind of property, whether it's house or car, is registered under husband's parents' name. And the woman usually face restrictions in owning or inheriting any kind of property. So there is a real fear for them is being left with the, with children and nowhere to live. And another important point is this domestic violence is considered to be not a police matter, rather purely personal family territory. So, and here we don't see the state that doesn't provide any support and also uh, women do not trust state anymore. And of course, since a lot of women are given this uh, care responsibility of uh, taking care of children or elderly parents, so, Most of the time they have less paid positions and they often stay in such relationship because they are quite dependent on their husbands. So there are so many other reasons, but these are the common.
0: Uh, Dina, you have any comment on this?
3: Um, yes, uh, but first of all, thank you for having me on this show. I'm a huge fan of the program, and it's really great to have this conversation with amazing people. I think I'm just in overall. I'm agree. Uh, I agree with what Leila and Oksana mentioned. That well, first of all, it should be it should be not uh, there. Sh- there shouldn't be measures that are taken to prevent uh, to fight against those uh, cases, but uh, measures that would prevent those pre- uh, uh, those cases. And that would be to start from uh, state institutions, but also there is a cultural thing where domestic violence is, as Oksana mentioned, is normalized and uh, considered as something normal. It's something that uh, you know the police will just tell the victims uh, to. Uh, why? Why would they even bother to you know to uh, apply um, and ask for help? And I think there should be also media literacy. And a huge, huge work done um, coming from the young generation, I think, all these things that is being uh, showed in the media, showing what domestic uh, abuse is and domestic violence is, I think it also creates some sort of awareness, at least among younger generation, where then they will try to talk to their parents, they will try to talk to their um, pals and uh, people around them.
0: Thank you. Mm-hmm, thank you. You know, I want to talk about this one specific case just a little bit more because, of course, the the, the poor victim had sa- actually commented that um, she had called police and complained, and 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 they they her quote, I think, was they no one heard me. Her abuser was an ex husband, and he was she had complained about him already once she had dropped the complaint because his family had had persuaded her to drop it, but the second time he actually went to court and was convicted. And, and then got at first he was sentenced to prison but then he ended up getting probation and let go you know what what I know that we've talked a little bit about the police but you know is this and you've said this is a common response but is there any way to push police to actually enforce this or the court systems to, to keep people like this in prison
1: well yes though there, there has to be an uh, you know like a, a- a very well-orchestrated approach, again, by the authorities. For example, um, this prevention education is an important uh, thing in fighting against uh, violence against women. And this prevention education has to include all of the population Women and girls, of course, so that they understand what is normal or what is not normal and to understand how to defend themselves. Um, but also the prevention education should also cover men and boys. And, um, actually, there is a rich body of reports that by, by experts also from, you know, CEDAW and other specialized organizations that have arrived uh, at a conclusion when they were conducting their research that prevention education when it starts uh, when it when it includes even boys as young as 9 years old actually leads to a very significant change in you know in in thinking and understanding the nature of violence also any programs that would for example Talk about the, the the you know conflict resolution in a family that you know where, for example, children, school children, maybe of older age, would be explained, you know how to basically have a normal relationship and settle conflicts at home. There are you know some other approaches as well, um, such as the training for judges and the police, uh, which is also. A big issue in, in Kyrgyzstan because when they come and when they receive cases like that, um, they not only do they wave them off, they actually, as my colleagues have here already mentioned, they tend to take the side of the perpetrator and not of the wi- victim. We have also seen cases in court where the judge would rule against a 12 or a 13 year old girl. Um, who was raped by older men and he would he would actually you know sit there and uh, and uh, find reasons why it was her fault and not theirs. so the, this education prevention education should be a very important part of of any strategy if the authorities decide to approach the issue. There is also a big lack of uh, mechanisms for these women to fight for their Uh, rights on an international level as well. Unfortunately, we are lacking an actual standalone treaty that would actually address the violence against women and girls as a separate human rights violation. And it's very interesting because this human rights violation is actually one of the most widespread violations on earth by far because it concerns a half of the planet's population anywhere in the world, in the West, in the East, doesn't matter. So I'll stop here and maybe I'll jump in with some more comments. Thank you.
0: Okay. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Oksana. Uh, I'm all, uh, well, if you want to add something, you can add something, but I also have another question here too, that in this case, the, the, the perpetrator of this crime, the, the one that, that attacked this woman, he was uh, one week later, he was actually convicted in court, but for, for violence against a, a different ex-wife. Right. So uh, what I'm kind of, uh, what I'm, wanted to hear from you is, is what, you know, the court system, is it kind of like when these are big highlight, you know, when the, when this makes a lot of news, when some incident has just happened, and makes a lot of news. Did they then decide to do their job? I mean, he had just been given a year and a half probation in April for the, essentially the same crime. Um, and then all of a sudden he got an eight and, eight and a half year sentence because he was already in the news. Do you see that is the, the court system just kind of forget or, or what happens?
2: When it comes to the court system, I would like to add that this domestic violence in general is not treated seriously. And for example, a lot of district staff, court or lawyers are all male, and they only get involved very seriously when the incidents happen. And they are more interested in counting numbers or resolved cases or if there is rape. And so... They want to focus on the cases uh, rather than uh, preventing them in the first place. So, And uh, probably this uh, the whole court legal system uh, does not treat domestic violence as uh, seriously. And uh, another point that I would like to add uh, is uh, concerning these uh, preventive measures that uh, has been mentioned by Leila. Uh, and I was uh, thinking uh, that stated Also should um, uh, work closely with mosques because the role of mullahs and imams, at least in the regions, really matter and play a crucial role. Uh, Because uh, in in the mosque, usually less uh, issues related to women's rights are discussed. Rather, uh, even less words are devoted to family issues. So in many discussions, uh, discussions are around how to satisfy the men, that Topic frequently emphasized in mosques and religious leaders, imams, usually convey messages reinforcing this male superiority, suggesting that it's acceptable for a husband to resort to violence if his wife refuses intimacy. So I have been working a lot with Islamic activists and their preventive uh, crisis activities. And a lot of women uh, rights activists told me that when they want to raise the issue of domestic violence publicly, they would constantly face resistance from state, from um, mosques, mainly because imams disapprove female activists advocating for women's rights, labeling them as disruptive and accusing them of promoting Western ideals. And so that even women try to raise these small issues like helping women with a domestic task, they would trigger a lot of uh, negative reactions, even from imam uh, who view them as a challenge to uh, male authority. And definitely in this case, we see that the state is also biased and really see a lot of uh, women's rights issues uh, as a challenge to even power authority.
0: Okay, thanks. This is an interesting point too, and how Islam might play into, uh, a role in some of this too. Uh, before we leave the court system, though, I want to give you a, a chance to speak to Adina about this because, um, you know, after after this last uh, horrible event, Janara Kaya, one of the members of Parliament, um, said that that in the last eighteen months, eighty eight people that were convicted of of rape and in some cases rape of of minors have been put on parole, which was the same thing that happened with this one. Uh, attacker and outside bishkek on in late september um you know the court system what have you is the court we've heard it's generally lenient but how do you how do you base parole uh you know for someone like that that's accused of a seriously of rape and they get parole
3: yes I think this is actually a very important information that we got uh, from Parliament that was on discussion where um, he goes and and rapes again his victim and then for the victim there is no um the inner world is shattered, and uh, there is no uh, justice or punishment for the for the ones who who do the wrong uh, wrongs. But um, with regards to the court system. I think even with this uh, last case of murder, we see that perpetrator, he was a former police and he knew the ways to get through uh, laws so he could get out of punishment. And we see that happening all over the places in Kyrgyzstan where the way how the system operates uh, and the way how they manage rape and um, gender-based violence cases only allow these perpetrators to to come back and uh, repeat their actions all over again. Because for them, apparently, there is always a way to get through a uh, law and uh, get out of punishment, legally and socially
1: speaking. Yeah, Can I add something?
0: Of course, please.
1: There is obviously some sort of a collusion that I see uh, within the system because the policemen are mostly men, judges are either men or women that grew up in this, you know, in this narrative that, you know, have adopted this idea of normalizing the violence against women and girls, of normalizing or disregarding the fact that, you know, a rape is a crime and it has to be punished accordingly. And so it's kind of, it's tricky. It's tricky to change um, this mindset. But uh, in order to change this narrative, there has to be work that need well, there is work that needs to be done. The other problem that we have been able to identify is basically a lack of. There is no scorecard for the states, you know, something that would allow the the activists and uh, the international community to basically measure the progress that the state is is making in addressing this issue. There is there is like no no way to to measure it the current system in uh, of reporting by the states um it's it's very loose and um they can you know basically provide a a paragraph or two paragraphs of some sort of a text um, that wouldn't contain any concrete statistics or wouldn't be sort of like in a a form of um, an application of sorts you know where they would actually have a question and a clear answer that needs to be given, yes, no, how many cases were prosecuted, how many perpetrators have been punished, what are the, you know, the end results, and so on. But what I know our colleagues are working on currently uh, with the CEDAW committee, actually, is um, they are developing an optional protocol that would include these mechanisms. And hopefully, you know, something that would be something that would help the states to actually make, you know, some progress in terms of addressing this issue.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, And a reminder, we're talking about the recent deeply disturbing incidents of violence against women and girls in Kyrgyzstan and the failure of authorities to take adequate measures to prevent this violence. And my guests are Adina Masalbekova, a Bishkek-based independent researcher focusing on China's engagement with Central Asia. And Adina has worked previously with the Shanghai Academy of Social Science, the Australian National University, Global Partners Governance, and the Centre for European Security Studies and OSCE Academy. Lila Saitbeck is a lawyer living in exile in Europe. Lila is the chairwoman of the NGO Freedom for Eurasia and a member of the Working Group for the Global Treaty to End All Forms of Violence Against Women and Girls, and Oksana Esmailbekova, a research fellow at the Leibniz Centrum Moderna Orient. Her research work focuses on kinship, migration, ethnicity, patronage, conflict, and gender in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, Thank you again for being on the show, everybody. All right, we're talking about the, the latest cases, but we could list practically every year. It seems like there's something outrageous happening, right? We had Burulai Tordali kazi in 2018 killed while put in a police holding facility with her attacker, or uh, would-be kidnapper. That was the woman that was filmed uh, with a tire hanging around her, her neck um, and, and her hands tied behind her back while her husband abused her. That came out in 2020. Izada Bekova, 2021, kidnapped in downtown Bishkek, Uh, with the aim of marrying her off and and bride kidnapping, um, and found dead on the outskirts of of Bishkek, along with her attacker who then committed suicide. Every time this stuff happens, people are outraged. And yet, they this don't seem to be taking effective action. I mean, the examples I've I've listed are from, you know, going back to when uh, Jan Beckup was the president, and it goes back even before that. So it's not Purely, certainly not the result of one administration. I mean, this has been happening consistently again and again. What What is failing here um, with all these? W- what happens to the public outrage? Does it fade away that much, that quickly? Uh, I'll start with you, Oksana. Uh,
2: it's good that you mentioned previous cases because we still remember all the cases, especially this video of a woman beating a woman. Uh, by putting a pair of car tires around her neck, and this case has co- caused a great response in Kyrgyzstan. And uh, but uh, w- and yet we uh, some of us yet forgot this case, and and this happens constantly on a regular basis. Good thing is that we have social media, and thanks to social media, we still learn more about these cases. And uh, uh, I would uh, even encourage people to speak about the most domestic violence on social media, uh, media sharing uh, individual experiences that can make a difference or help bring attention to the issue. In my understanding that I think we don't have, um, there are lack of NGOs that are working with gender issues in the remote uh, regions of Kyrgyzstan. There are really good uh, NGOs working in urban areas in Osh or in Bishkek but we see that lack of ngos in a rural area and these are very important and since women don't have um alternative like they cannot rely on the state they also they don't have uh, to uh, this institution who would they would rely, for example, on NGOs. So they turn to institutions that work, and in this case, uh, kinship or extended networks uh, remain kind of uh, stable for them, and uh, that's why they keep rely on these uh, informal institutions. So, and I think I would uh, suggest to revive uh, already existing Rensavet, this uh, women's consulate, because during the Soviet time they were so good, and and uh, and people, I think the state should really uh, work together with the um, Savet and open a lot of medical units, midpoint and there are a lot of work has to be done at the local level, especially it would be nice to have more psychological support centers focusing on women's mental health, providing information how to access to legal assistance So these are very essential to create a safer or supportive environment for women in Kyrgyzstan at the moment.
0: Great. Thank you. Uh, Adina, uh, what about some, and like I said, some of this outrage too, but if you could also speak about some of the organizations that could help out, but you know, when these things happen, you hear deputies and other officials, you know, calling out for stricter punishment, even the death penalty in some cases. Uh, And, and, but, and yet, uh, you know, like I said, I, I just read off a list, and practically every year there was something outrageous, and that's only one example of many. What happens?
3: What we also can see is that um, with this, um, not just with the, the cases, even with the attempts of civic of uh, activists and um, victims of domestic and gender violence, the attempts to bring the general attention um, to the public, to the state. They are usually they were being met violently. Now they are uh, completely shut down, and there is no even uh, it, it, now it's not even allowed to go on any on protests. Um, and uh, what we also see is that um, in some cases, these attempts by activists, uh, they are narrated by the state as uh, some gay propaganda that you know they are fighting for this Western rotten values. Uh, which also did not make sense because uh, gender based violence um, we see it's happening all across the world it's not uh, uh, and it has nothing to do with uh, LGbt community but then all these attempts they're also being suppressed by the government, which is also a huge huge problem because then uh, the information is not delivered in a right way by the uh, by the official civil servants and by the official uh, discourse and uh, I think if, it, if this is uh, for the civil uh, civil society uh, now it takes courage to to keep fighting because we've seen um, that in the past during the eighth of March during the protest and uh, peaceful marches, there were women um, uh, seized by the police and brought to the uh, interrogations. Um, and I think this is also very important that, that the state supports, at least partially, these uh, efforts that try to talk about these important issues.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, and Laila, I want to get your your views on this too. But also, I also want to shift over to the new government, the, the new authorities, President Sadr Japarov and his crew. There was a case... Uh, just it Actually, it's been ongoing for a couple of years now. But but the, a couple of months ago, the Constitutional Court ruled in favor of a woman called Alton and She wanted to use the matronymic, not the patronymic for her children, because she said the fathers had never been around, hadn't paid any alimony, had never shown any interest in the children. So she wanted to use the, the matronymic and give them her name. Now, and just to be clear on this, this was the Russian thing, right? I mean, she as far as I know, she didn't want her children to be someone you know, Alton Kazee or Alton Alou or something. It was just a Russian one, you know, the Russian name that she was looking to use for. But and yet, the head of the security committee, Kamchi Tashiev. Objected to this on on Facebook. We objected to the constitutional court's ruling that she would be able to do that. Uh, and and of course, Sadr Japarov. Since then, there's been legislation that that changed the constitutional order again, so that Sadr Japarov, the president, can actually overrule the constitutional court on this. I mean, what what kind of message is this sending to society? They seem to actually be supporting, uh, you know, keeping women's role it, to a bare minimum.
1: Yeah. Um, I also think that this was a pretext for the authorities to finally do this, you know, reform of constitutional court to allow themselves to basically override or uh, overhaul the decisions of the constitutional court that they don't like or somehow overlook and it comes out and they realize it's not a good decision for them. So basically it's it gave them an opportunity to give themselves uh, the authority to influence and control the Constitutional Court's decisions. Um, in terms of the statement of Tashiv in regards to the matronymic, um, it's quite interesting that the, the head of the National security Agency would even would even actually speak out on that. I don't because this is not an issue of national security. Again, it's uh, it's really just a patriarchal narrative that is that is speaking up. Um, there is also there have been also statements by the parliament members and also by some some of the government officials. I think Adil Beysalov has also said something similar that publication. Or publishing or speaking up on any platform about the issue of violence against women and girls is damaging. Then they want to somehow prevent and stifle these voices. They want to prevent this information from being disseminated. They want to prevent the discussion around the topic. And I think um, that's that's kind of my opinion at this at this moment that. The entire attitude of current Kyrgyz authorities, but also really the previous administrations as well. I think uh, there are, you know, other things that are influencing this. It's a general rollback on human rights. It's uh, a general effort uh, by the authorities to to suppress the voices, to, to limit the freedoms, to... To take back the the rights of the people, um, the you know, and limit the society in its um, in its ability to express itself or enjoy some rights, um, and we have to also remember that women in Kyrgyzstan is actually a half of the population. So when you keep a half of the population repressed and silent, I would say that for anybody who is looking to consolidate his uh, power and um, strengthen the uh, authoritarianism. Of course, it's it's beneficial when a half of the population is silent.
0: Okay, uh, thank you. And that that is a great way for me to transition into my next topic uh, for Oksana. Um, a question for you now. I think you've even written about the percentage of women in government, right? I mean, according to right the constitution, thirty percent of the the seats in parliament are supposed to be. Uh, women. And and that hasn't been true for like a long, long time. But there's also been information recently, I think 24 KG published an article that shows that women are present at very very many levels in the regional administrations, district administrations in local police forces. They're not the heads of of local police forces. How how much does that hurt? I mean, uh, clearly women's problems would be heard uh, at least a little more clearly if there was more representation uh, of women in government.
2: Uh, I think, thank you uh, for the great question. And I would like to link this, uh, your question, with the previous point that Leila has uh, raised concerning that how Kyrgyz uh, government or oh, Kyrgyzstan is a quite patriarchal society, which I agree. And with the case of Alton Kapala, we see that state has reproduced male dominance. Uh, so, uh, as we know, this, uh, there has been a lot of uh, from uh, uh, as a scholar, I can say that uh, in patriarchal societies, women also have their own agency. They can really find ways uh, and to exercise their agency by under the umbrella that they might be suppressed or silenced. But nevertheless, they have their own ways of um, uh, showing their power, but probably not in an invisible way. This one thing, and second comes to the second uh, the point concerning this. Um, I know a lot of uh, really great uh, women, uh, they were given they were offered the position at a high state level, but nevertheless, they uh, decided not to accept these positions mainly because. partially of care responsibilities. Uh, Children and family might not uh, prefer that women keep uh, working for a long time and then they would be blamed for not taking children. But uh, the second time, they also didn't want, some of the women didn't want to uh, serve for the men uh, when they start working in the state administration. So I would see this kind of resistance is one way of resistance They don't want to work with these men and rather a lot of uh, really great activist women were quite happy working for NGOs where they would feel really uh, they had their own agency and they can really make impact because working for the state, they really have to speak the language of the state authorities, convince them, find a nice way of dealing with them and, and a lot of... Brilliant women that i spoken, they just refused of accepting state uh, positions due to this uh, dominance that they constantly face. But rather, they would prefer to be quite independent and uh, work for, the, for NGOs or other works like being teachers or for the Genes of it.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, we're coming close to the end, so I'm going to give everyone a chance for last comments. But also, if you could mention what what sort of social safety net do women and, and girls have in Kyrgyzstan outside the legal system? I mean, are there what kind of organizations are out there, uh, NGOs or, or a local organizations that could possibly help, especially if women have a legal problem? and want the law to actually be enforced when when there's a ruling against um, ex-husbands or ex-boyfriends or current husbands or boyfriends uh, Adina
3: unfortunately i I cannot give a list but um, I know that there are crisis centers that operate but there is also a problem where you know the activists uh, I previously spoke with they would mention that the crisis centers they um, they give shelter to women and to kids but then there's a problem where, You know, they they keep on um, accepting new people, new victims. And then uh, some women who lived there for a bit longer time, then they had to leave. So that's another problem where um, crisis centers, they only serve as something temporary, but they're not even solving or, you know, preventing the issue at all. And I think another problem that we have, is um, with, uh, especially with rape cases. Uh, recently there was a case with a girl who was assaulted by a taxi driver and then she went to the police and she couldn't even report about the real case so she lied about the driver stealing her phone because she was ashamed to report about the assault case, the sexual assault case. And I think it's very important to also talk about sexual education about um you know educating especially young people about their um rights uh, and about the fact that you know they if they are sexually or somehow harassed they they have a right to report and there is no shame in that and i think it's it's extremely important that victims they are aware that uh, there is no shame in that uh, but unfortunately It's something that that is happening all over the places. And uh, they feel even more guilt for um, challenging these uh, things.
0: Okay, Uh, thank you. Marla?
1: I can't really say the names of the organization right off the top of my head. But um, there are organizations in Kyrgyzstan that that run shelters for uh, victims of domestic and sexual violence. And they also can refer the woman to lawyers, to lawyers that specialize in cases of um, sexual violence and and domestic violence as well. And they have um, already been able to um, to collect some experience on how how to handle these. But I guess my recommendation to women would be, and I I do tell that to the the women that we are in touch with on ground that they should continue going to the professionals that are supposed to be doing this job and although at this time it's not bringing the results that they are supposed to produce they this these efforts should not should not Stop! It has to. It just the process has to has to continue, um, and unfortunately, we do have these um, tragic cases, such as with um, the, the the recent case that you have mentioned, where a husband, a former police officer, has mutilated his wife, his ex wife, after after numerous efforts by her to to um, appeal to the police and the courts. Um, We, I'm afraid we will have more cases in the future. I don't think this is the last case, unfortunately. And um, I do think that it's very important, as um, Oksana has mentioned, to engage the religious leaders in this work, and I hope the authorities will maybe change their mind and, um, eventually will agree to engage you know more of a society into solving this um, this issue because obviously the suppression of freedoms might be of an interest, but the situation of women and actually the violence against women and girls is actually something that is a factor in in country having, very big economic problems because it causes losses. It actually causes huge financial losses to the state. Um, and when they start understanding that, I think maybe that will help them. Maybe that will help them to to start taking steps towards towards finding some you know some solutions that are already there. They they don't even need to be invented. It's all it's already all there. They just need to, um, to use existing existing materials that are. Already produced by by the
0: experts in the field. Okay, thank you, Um, Oksana. You get the last word.
2: Yeah, thank you. I would like to raise important issue, which is the role of Islamic activists, female activists, especially their role in preventing such crisis, and they have been really effective, even. Uh, more, pro- even better than the state uh, can provide. and They took the uh, social welfare activities of the state. Uh, for example, uh, the role of um, Mutakalim, Islamic organizations, they have been the only one w- that uh, could challenge imams and, uh, and deal with them and uh, asking them to speak and uh, raise the issue of, of uh, women's right in the mosques. And uh, they are the ones who really raise domestic uh, violence publicly, and they have their own social media in Facebook and Instagram. They also raise these issues uh, monthly. And uh, I think, uh, but unfortunately, uh, they are very limited, this kind of Islamic organizations that really focus on women's rights. And I think if if, uh, more NGOs and uh, Islamic organizations uh, work together on uh, common values, like uh, protecting the rights of women, I think uh, it would be a really good, uh, effective tool, I think, for women to help them to solve their problems.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you all for being on the program. I know it's a tough topic. Um, I'm I'm sure we're going to come back to this in the future. And I would be happy to have you all as guests on the program. So thank you, Lila, and Oksana and Adina for being on the program. And a big thanks, as always, to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjly's podcast producer in Washington, D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjly's podcast or the Central Asia in Focus newsletter by visiting Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's website at RFARL.org. Thank you much. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye.